Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. As you well know, we get together here every week and we discuss issues involved with and impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. You know, it's a great day to be with us here on the Business of Agriculture because my guest is Jim Dudlasek. He's the editorial director of Progressive Grocer Magazine. Jim is a friend of the show. He's been on the show before. He's awesome. He has great information. He knows a lot of stuff about what's going on in uh, in food. And I want you to be here so you can like go, hey, man, I got it. This guy, this guy's awesome. So welcome to the show, Mr. Dudlasek. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me. And so here's my question to you, if you're okay with it. Uh, uh, we, we've got, since last time you were on here, we talked about what was happening and, and we've got to be able to say, all right, we got to know what's happening because we in agriculture are really good at the production. We sometimes forget that it's not about us. It's not about how many bushels we can squeeze out of an acre, how many pounds we can throw onto an Angus steer. It's about a customer. And I always remind my ag audiences that it's always about the customer. Well, these customers, after all, are why we make a living. They're how we make a living. With that in mind, What's happening at the grocery store and in food trends really matters to us because, you know, there's a reason we don't uh, we don't produce the same kind of stuff we did 100, 200 years ago, although some of that's coming back. One thing that we've been really good at producing is sugar and corn syrup. And I have been all over this lately because I just read an article about manufacturers of these uh, sugary drinks. Uh, little boxed beverages for children are trying to get the fruit juice out because fruit juice is now on the outs as almost as bad as pop and sugar and corn syrup in soda pop. What are you seeing in way of the sweetened drink category? Well, sugary drinks have definitely been on the decline. Um, you know, whether that's juices or sodas, um, carbonated soft drinks definitely have been on the decline, whether it's um, sugar-sweetened or diet. Um, people are looking more for what they call clean label products. They want things that are simple, what they view as pure. So high fructose corn syrup has been in the crosshairs, as has uh, a lot of artificial sweeteners. So uh, you're seeing more um, a gravitation both toward quote-unquote natural fake sweeteners like stevia and the like, and also gravitation toward cane sugar, uh, which is why Mexican Coke is so popular among sodas and a lot of designer wait, soda. Wait, 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 wait. Dear listener, he just said Mexican Coke. He meant Coca-Cola <laughs> Coca-Cola bottles yeah. that are from and bottled in Mexico. That's a true story. If you go to certain restaurants, they'll have uh, the returnable type bottles. Like if you go to Vegas, there'll be restaurants there. You get a sugar made with cane sugar, Coca-Cola in a returnable bottle as opposed to uh, a, a plastic bottle here that comes with uh, high fructose corn syrup. So, yeah, that's true. Um on, the, on that front, we know that soda pop has been dying a little bit. Even the diet stuff has. Now, not with me. I still drink a couple of three Cokes, two Cokes a day. But it's leveled off. And as you said, it's not that, the, that there's not really to drink the pop. It's that they want to go and get these these made with cane sugar. So what's the difference? Why is it that cane sugar, they think that cane sugar is better? Is that the idea? Well, as I understand it, and you know, I, I hear it from both the the consumer side and both from the industry side. And as I understand it, there is 
scientifically and chemically and from a recipe standpoint, really no difference. The idea is that corn syrup and liquid sugar is easier to use and more economical when you're formulating millions and millions of gallons for for consumer consumption. I think there there at least is a perception. You said liquid, sugar is. You said right. liquid sugar is. So corn syrup, yeah, you and I both know, because I've been hearing the same thing from my corn people, from a chemical standpoint, from a carbohydrate, hydrogen, and it's what, C-H-O-C, I mean, all those different things, fructose, right. sucrose, glucose, they're all the same, but there's a perception among the consumer that there's a difference. Yes, when they see pure cane sugar or they see words that they recognize more than others, there is a feeling that, well, this is better, not necessarily better for me because there's sort of a, a, a stigma against sugar as a whole, but they feel that it's fresher, purer, cleaner, um, what have you. Um, that being said, um, the growth area really has been more in functional beverages, water-type beverages, uh, waters that have added vitamins, electrolytes. Uh, we're also seeing a rise in these other uh, in fermented beverages like kombuchas, even drinking vinegars. Um, uh, one of the uh, products we just had come through our new products contest this year was uh, um, called a smoobucha, which was a uh, hybrid of a smoothie and kombucha. So it was sort of a, a uh, for lack of a better term, a gateway kombucha for people who are more used to smoothies and maybe a little intimidated by the, the idea of drinking a fermented beverage as a way to get them started on that path. Uh, Mr. Douglas, like, will you do me a favor? Let's go back to you said a smoobucha is a hybrid between a smoothie. I know what smoothies are. I've never yeah. had one. In fact, we had guests staying with us uh, a year ago, and I was making a chocolate milkshake in the morning, and the guest said, "Oh, you're having a fruit smoothie," and I said, "I, I've, I've never had a fruit smoothie. No, I'm having a chocolate milkshake with whole milk and uh, as much ice cream as I can put in the thing, and some Nestle Quick." Oh, well, can you make me a smoothie? Probably, but I don't have the ingredients. Uh, <laughs> okay. But what the hell's a bucha? Uh, well, I got a smoothie. Uh, I understand what that is. What's a bucha? A kombucha, K O M B U C H A, is a is a fermented beverage. Um, and the um, the live activity within the beverage is supposed to be beneficial for gut health. Ah, okay. So hence the the hybrid. Okay, then. When I'm thinking then about um, these other things, you said something other funny about beverages, how this has all changed. Okay, when we were kids, uh, we didn't get soda pop except for on special occasions. I make that joke to my audiences all the time. And by mm -hmm. special occasion, I mean someone had influenza because my mother thought 7-Up <laughs> cured the flu. So the only the only soft drink I got generally was but once once in a while I'd get a root beer. Sometimes we'd go to the A&W root beer stand, and then we got 7-Up when somebody was sick. But what we never got was pop every single day like some kids today do. Right. Well, that's changed, and now there's all these other things. And then they tell me that there's uh, these box beverages. But before we get into that, before you said smoobucha and kombucha, you said drinking vinegar-based drinks. What in yeah. the hell? Well, that's essentially it, it is what it what it sounds like. It's a vinegar that is formulated for drinking. So it's not like you're, you know, drinking salad dressing or that, but it is essentially a vinegar made in the same way. Um, but it is 
purported to have certain health attributes, so it is fashioned into a beverage, and it will have different complementary flavors. Um, it's it's sort of in that same category as a kombucha because it is a, is a fermented um, product. Interesting. Okay, then while we're talking about these other things, so if pop's going away, or at least not going away, it's, it's decreasing in consumption, declining in consumption. That's why the beverage companies got smart and they started buying Dasani and uh, Aquafina, and then right. they're also getting at other things. Juice consumption also is going down. Orange juice. I read an article a year and a half ago. Orange juice is down like. God, I think it was over half just in five years. They've lost half of the consumption of OJ in like five years. And of course, typical ag people, the orange producers said, well, it's because we're not making enough oranges. I'm like, only in ag would they think declining consumption by 50% in five years, the answer is to make more of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, what do you know about juices? Well, I, I think it is it, to a certain extent it's falling to the same uh, it's falling prey to the same reasons that soda is falling out of favor because of the sugar content, and that it's felt that if you're going to benefit from fruit, it is better to eat the whole fruit and benefit from the vitamins and the fiber rather than the juice, which tends to be more concentrated uh, with sugar and uh, overall not as healthy for you, um, at least in the minds of, of some folks. Um, uh, for me personally, uh, you know, uh, I've been buying more of the fresh squeezed juices that supermarkets have. Um, there may be a shift there uh, for people who are shopping in areas that offer these services. They're buying less of the packaged juice and more of the juice that is created on site. Perception there that, oh, it's fresher, it's purer because I'm actually watching my grocer put the oranges into this giant machine. And a lot of supermarkets actually make a big show of it. The machine is you know, is glass sided and you can see the juice going through and the rinds coming out and the bottles being filled. And it's something that is made before your eyes and it has a shorter shelf life, but you saw it being made and capped and you can take it home and consume it within a couple of days. And there's a fresher aspect there. Yeah. So it's that whole thing about local and fresh, local and fresh, homegrown, right. local, fresh, fresh, fresh. And that's kind of a neat thing. Uh, and that probably is going to grow. Boxed beverages. Uh, the article in the Wall Street Journal that I just saw the other day was about parents uh, trying to still get their kids. Of course, somehow water uh, was never brought up. It's just it, parents having a hard time getting away from sweetened beverages offering this. And there was a product called, I believe it was Hint. That's a brand name, Hint. It's a boxed mm -hmm. beverage. So popular children, they, they, you know, they pull out the straw, stick it in there, and then it's got some fruit juice. And it's the idea is that it's less sugar in that drink. What's happening in boxed beverages for kids? You know, I, I have heard of that. I believe the idea is that it is more water and less flavor, so it's less sugar. It's just sort of a hint of that. Uh, as far as boxed beverages, um, I mean, I think that, you know, it's it's still viewed as a convenience. Um, anything involving any type of packaging now is going to be scrutinized more because there is a movement against excessive packaging, against packaging that isn't considered recyclable or sustainable. So the less packaging that is involved, the better. Um, I know that for a boxed beverage, the paperboard is considered uh, more green, if you will, than, say, a traditional plastic bottle or uh, the pouch packaging that those um, Capri Suns are packaged in. I know as a uh, as a 
parent who has hosted a few little kids parties when my daughter, which who's 15 now was much younger. Um, the, the, uh, the recyclability of those little packages always concerned me because generally you'd hand those out and somebody would either abandon them wholesale or pierce them with the straw and squeeze them over the room. And that was the last you saw of that, whether they actually drank the darn thing, I have no idea. But uh, <laughs> it does, it does have too much, but um, the idea of more of a sustainable package and the uh, paperboard packaging manufacturers have, have made a good case for boxed uh, above plastic uh, and you'll even see uh, when I attend the natural product shows, you'll see boxed water, and it's you know it almost looks like a generic product. It just says water on it or boxed water, and uh, it's handed out in lieu of plastic bottles. Uh, the only thing that would be more sustainable is you know filling your own plastic bottle, and they even have those set up at the fountains at the airport and in more areas. In fact, I just heard I believe it was I'm trying to remember what airport it is. I think it's San Francisco International that they are no longer going to sell plastic bottles of water in the airport um you're expected to have your own water bottle and fill it up at water fountain stations throughout the facility yeah and you know what it's interesting to me because as a farm and ag guy i see the movement you know there's a big movement we're going to get to it which is perfect segue we're going to get to it because meat the argument against meat and you're a meat eater i'm a meat eater i'm a carnivore uh the argument against meat used to be health. And then the big fat surprise by uh, Nina Teicholz came out and sort of blew that whole thing out of the water five years ago that no, uh, eating meat does not give you a heart attack. There's a lot of bad science there. So then it became, oh, well, if we're vegetarians and we want to grind our agenda, uh, we want to take meat away. What should we do? Oh, environmentalism. Environmentalism is a religious movement right now. So now it's about cow farts and inefficiency of feed yards. And a lot of that's actually... Uh, some, shall we say, shaky usage of um, uh, facts to make that happen. The same people that want to push a vegetarian or a plant-based agenda onto us seem like they're missing the boat if they truly cared about the environment. We throw away pounds and pounds of a plastic uh, waste per person in the United States of America. I'm surprised that what's happening in San Francisco hasn't happened sooner, meaning we got too much plastic bottles of water, for goodness sakes, water's right over there in the fountain. So waste mm. and packaging is going to be a huge thing that you see already happening in your business, right? Oh, absolutely. I was just at the uh, Grocery Manufacturers Association Leadership Forum last week, and quite a bit of the programming content was about packaging sustainability, um, trying to reduce the amount of packaging that's used, and the idea of having packaging be more... Uh, it was an interesting concept because it's almost like they're hearkening back to the days where uh, everything came in glass bottles and you paid a deposit and you returned the bottles back. There are companies out there that are extending that idea to all manner of packaging. So uh, the way they explained it was when you have something that comes in a plastic package, like a plastic bottle of water or a bottle of soda, and you bring it home, essentially you own that package. So you really have no interest in that package's future. You just throw it away, hopefully to be recycled, but otherwise it's out of your hair. Now they're structuring it so when you buy the product, you're buying the product, but you're only 
quote unquote renting the package, you're putting a deposit on the bottle, whatever material it might be made of, and the examples they showed were predominantly metal. So after you would pay a deposit as part of your purchase, and after you consume the product, and this was not just for liquid product, it was for any manner of different um, food or even non-food items, um, you would return the package to the retailer who would have an arrangement with a larger solution company that would make sure that that package is cleaned and sanitized or reused or otherwise refashioned into something. And by the way, Jim, I I saw this exact same thing you're talking about coming a couple of years ago. And I said, well, when I was a kid, we didn't buy a pop, but those people that did, you got eight packs of returnable bottles. And then after you got a trunk full of them, you took them back to the grocer and got yourself some money. Uh, They used to do a thing with glass delivery of milk. And that was a returnable, sure. reusable, cleanable, sanitized bottle. Uh, I wondered forever, why are all these environmental people not pushing that? Again, the container gets reused. Isn't it supposed to be reduce, reuse, repurpose, recycle? And they told me that recycling is actually the worst of those options because it still takes a lot of energy. So I wondered right. if you were going to be, what about like mayonnaise? It used to come in a glass jar. Are we going to see mayonnaise get to where you bring back a, a returnable glass jar? Or is it going to be pickle jars? Same thing? You know, they, the the way they, they frame the discussion, it would could be, Pretty much anything. Their their thought was that any product out there could be made recyclable or reusable. That nothing should be wasted. And you know, when you think about it, it's going to take a lot of, um, not necessarily convincing, but people's behavior is going to have to be changed because they're so used to shopping and buying and using in a certain way. But ultimately, when you really look at it, it makes sense. Um, you're paying a little bit more upfront, which some people might sort of recoil at having to pay additional money for each product, but the idea that you're getting it back and that there is no waste uh, when you're done. Um, I mean, I suppose there's some products where some people might think, oh, that was you know, washed and used again. I'm not sure I want somebody else's product, but um, you know, with the advancements we have, just as long as the washing and sanitizing process doesn't create more pollution than it solves. Say that again? The uh, uh, just to make sure that the the washing and sanitizing process that is used for the reclaimed packaging doesn't create more pollution than it redu- than it takes out of the okay, system. Okay, and that's where I guess we're going to go right into the next thing because I wanted to, I, I'm being facetious. I wanted to hear you say that there's this idea uh-huh. that everything that we do, if you if if a certain politician or vocal leader of a group says, "Here's what we should be doing. This is better for everything," then there's almost right. like the blind uh, lemmings that just run and follow right behind. Just because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that eating a cheeseburgers is like, you know, like, like killing the environment doesn't mean that that's actually true. So we're going to talk about plant-based meat. There are arguments against regular meat made by advocates, marketers, and fans of veganism and fake meat that say, if you eat a cheeseburger, if you eat a pork chop, you're bad for the environment. But there's a lot of transportation and process costs, as well as packaging that goes into fake meat. So let's start with your assessment on fake meat's environmental footprint. Well, what's what's really interesting there is, um, uh, and this is very timely because um, John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market, raised some hackles when he suggested that these plant-based meat alternative products are not actually whole foods. Because um, 
because they're so highly processed in order to mimic what they claim to replace. Um, and it flies in the face with the idea that people are looking for more clean label, natural products, food that hasn't been messed with, but yet they're taking something that isn't something and turning it into something they want you to think it is. And that has to require a lot of processing in order to do that. And on top of that, it's not necessarily any better for you than what it's replacing. Not saying that meat is bad for you because it is a wonderful and very economical source of protein, and I love it to death. Um, but I was at a restaurant recently, and they offered one of these plant-based meat alternatives as an, an option for getting your burger. Um, and they had all the nutrition information next to each other, and there was absolutely no advantage in calories or amount of fat to choosing the the uh, the plant-based alternative. Precisely. So what we got there. So the argument is that, well, it's better for the environment, but yet is it? Okay. So what you just said, you say John Mackey, you say the Whole Foods founder is the one that said, this is not a whole food, it's a processed food. So that's going to shake a lot of people's foundations right there, because when a person that's all about whole foods uh, questions that, I say it's all agriculture, it's all food. I'm not against it. I only would point right. out just like some things I point out about organic, just because it sells and there's a consumer base for it doesn't mean that it's not being a little bit um, saying something is uh, organic or more healthful doesn't mean that it's true. Uh, on these products, they do incorporate fat. It's plant-based fat. They do uh, have to do a lot of processing to make this happen so that it tastes or uh, feels in your mouth like a burger. Right. They're is the environmental component to it that they're trucking in a lot of stuff. And the only argument they can make is, well, cows are bad for the environment. And you can say, yeah, but you've got a lot of stuff. So I think they're going to have an initial big push on selling it as better for the environment. And the more we get down the road, we're going to say, well, I don't know. There's a lot of processing. There's a lot of facilities. There's a lot of uh, transportation. And also, you still you still trucked palm oil from across the, uh, the ocean. I don't think they're going to right. long-term win on environmental grounds. Well, what's interesting is um, there was just a report from the Hartman Group that came out a few days ago, came across my desk, and... Um, it basically said that, according to their research, that uh, plant-based alternatives are not the biggest threat to meat sales or actually any alternative to any animal protein. According to their report, they say that consumers see plant-based alternatives as no different from conventional meat or in dairy. They did it for dairy as well. In regards to being all natural or minimally processed or healthy or environmentally responsible, their report contends that it's the image of factory farming and the allegations of animal abuse that are making the bigger case to consumers to question whether they should be eating animal products. Okay, so you're saying it's going to not be environmental. The Hartman Group did this research. It said not environmental, but, it, but uh, industrial agriculture's perception and animal treatment. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's not all environmental. And... God knows there's plenty of reports out there that can support any argument you want to make either way. This particular report I found interesting because they're saying the consumers, at least the ones they talked to, did not consider the environmental or the health aspect at all, that the consumers they talked to predominantly considered the 
ethical treatment of animals the biggest factor in their choice of whether to pick animal protein or a substitute. Got it. And you know, that's really good information, Jim, because uh, I had said the early push, the sale of this product is going to be on environmental grounds because environmentalism is a near religious uh, movement. You know, the March Against Monsanto was allegedly predicated in environmentalism. Uh, the thing about cars, when you see Northern California, there are warning labels on gas pumps in certain areas like Berkeley, which leans pretty hard to a certain political direction. They're saying if you drive a car, you must be, you know, not care about the environment. So with that being said, I assumed it was going to be environmentalism that took the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger over the finish line. Sounds like, according to the Hartman Group poll, it's perception of ag from an industrial ag and uh, large-scale animal uh, livestock facilities and then the animal abuse. Now then, that also means that it's not about health. So what you just said about table topping these two, it's not going to be about health. Is that where plant-based meat is going to really ultimately win out? Then it's about the animal? Well, it could be. Because when you talk about the idea of health, I, I think it's a combination of all these things. And it's going to be interesting to see exactly what becomes the predominant factor. Uh, because right now, you know, I'm seeing the Hartman study says one thing. But yet, I have Nielsen information in front of me here that says 98% of meat alternative buyers also, also purchase meat, and they do so more than the average buyer, because these products are aimed at the so-called flexitarians, who are historically meat eaters who are looking for alternatives for reasons of health or environmental concerns. Um, according to the Nielsen data that I just saw this, this past week, almost 40% of buyers of meat alternative products they spend more on meat than average meat buyers. So they're eating everything. They're flexitarians, which also makes them omnivores. So they're open to everything. <laughs> so you and I are both um, omnivores also. But here's what's interesting about that is right. I assumed that based on the price point, I assumed that the buyers of plant-based protein were going to be doing it strictly as, by God, I will never eat meat. I am so against it. I don't care if plant-based protein is more. I'm making a social statement. And what your research proves is that's not the case at all. That's actually... Uh, it's actually they are meat buyers and meat eaters, and they are eaters and buyers of the non-animal meat. Well, here's the thing about companies that are making these plant uh, plant-based alternative products: they already know they have the vegans. They don't have to sell them anything. They're coming after the meat eaters who are at a certain age or looking at their health or have concerns about the environment, and they want to sort of get them thinking about hey. Maybe occasionally I could skip the meat and try this other product because it might be A, better for me, B, better for the environment, yeah, and C, whatever other reason they might have. So they're good. looking at people who are still going to eat meat but will occasionally sub in these alternative products as just to, you know, change of pace. Yeah. And so if you're the meat industry, you obviously just point out and say, if you're doing this because you got a certain age, you thought it was better for your health. That's not true. Here's the data. Cause it's really probably not based right. on palm oil and all those other things and processing and whatnot and various chemicals to keep it shelf life, et cetera. And then the other reason is, and from an environmental standpoint, you can say this is not really true because of, you know, uh, the actual issue with methane, et cetera, et cetera, and transportation and all those things. So really then it will come back to, if I'm a plant-based meat, plant-based protein marketer, my strongest ploy might be going back to animal treatment. 
That could be. Yeah. Now, the, the, the part of the argument that intrigues me a lot, too, is the idea of lab-grown meat. That's totally a whole other realm in itself. You're not talking about taking plants and turning it into something that closely resembles the taste and texture of meat. You're talking about taking cells from an actual animal and manipulating them in the lab to actually create what is real meat without the animal. You're sort of taking the animal out of the equation. You're just using their DNA. So my question to you, hang on. That's where I think you really get into the idea of someone thinking, wait, if you don't think a burger made out of plants isn't natural, what are you going to think about this meat that was conjured in a lab? <laughs> that's got the idea of Frankenfood written all over it, really. Um, but it's that that's that's the sort of the next frontier, and that's where it's going. Now, I don't have any clue how they hope to replicate the effects of things like feed and exercise on whole muscle cuts by creating a wad of meat in a petri dish. Um, but it's uh, it, it just it's just another part of what makes this industry very interesting and very intriguing to watch unfold. I think it's very interesting. There's a lot of, lot of innovation going on. I think it's interesting that the lab meat thing, and I agree with you, Jim, that the thing with lab meat was that we have a society that resisted genetically engineered crops. And we're just talking about mm -hmm. we changed around a corn plant so that it was more resistant to cutworms so we didn't have to use insecticide. The average person doesn't know that. They think that somehow because they watch Dr. Oz, it means, oh, GMOs mean chemicals. Okay, how are those people going to make the leap from a, a corn stalk that it was bred and created to resist cutworm so we cannot use insecticide? How do they make the leap to, oh, but this cheeseburger was made in a Petri dish by a person in a lab coat. Uh, I, I think that lab meat is going to really struggle to get adaptation and adoption. Oh, absolutely. And they're going to have to figure out how to replicate bone, too, if they're going to sell me a cowboy ribeye. Because, um, you know, that's, that's my cut. And I can't see that coming out of a lab anytime soon. Quite honestly, I, I don't know that that's going to be commercially viable anytime soon. Um, but the research is continuing. Yeah. And I, I think lab-based meat is going to struggle. Okay. Last question. You're a Chicago guy. You're a food guy. Uh, I read in an article and I put it on social media that there's a place called RPM Steakhouse in Chicago. And there's also, they profiled uh, one in, I think in San Fran and a couple other places that the trend was for old meat. This is a big article that they're pushing this uh, product and they're charging a good premium for it old cows, like six to eight-year-old cows, some of them old dairy cows. Now, when I was a kid on the dairy farm, we called those cutters and canners. We got about, got about 13 to 25 cents a pound for them. If regular beef was going for 75 cents, you know, you'd get about one-third. And those things would go on a trailer and go to, at best, if they were in good shape, they go for Golden Corral, uh, $6.99 steakhouse buffet steak uh, <laughs> products, or they'd go to school burgers or be put in a can. And now there are high-end steakhouses selling old cows. Have you heard about this? Uh, I, I have to admit I haven't, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, you've already you, you've already seen the popularity of dry-aged beef, and that's something the restaurants have to do themselves. So they're probably thinking, why not just buy it old? Why do I have to take up space in my restaurant aging it? You know, let it come in. 
it, it also speaks to the ability of the food industry to create new trends um, and drive their popularity. You know, thinking back to the days when chicken wings were tossed out or for soup stock, and then all of a sudden, someone in Buffalo, New York, invents a neat late night snack, and the price of wings has risen ever since. Um, you know, that follows along with what you've said about the about the older uh, head of cattle. By the way, it's um, a perfect story. You know, if if you figure these things were were not going through, they were getting used, but they weren't getting used at any sort of premium. Like you said, it used to be these small wings weren't being used at all. They're being thrown into chicken stock or at best. Uh, and now you've got a value-added product. I made the very point, just like you're saying, we should embrace this and celebrate it because what we just did was we just somebody in the food industry just made more money off of something that we were giving away for a lot less a few uh, days or weeks or years ago. Yep. All right. We talked about plant-based meat. We talked about sugary drinks. We talked about trends in the grocery store. You even told me what kombuka was because I did not know what, and I certainly didn't know what smubuka was. So I really appreciate it. His name is Jim Dudlasek. He's the editorial director of Progressive Grocer. Closing thoughts. What do you got for me? Anything? Well, um, as always, the food industry is an amazing place to work in. It's uh, it's fantastic to observe. Um, we just closed out our annual uh, Editor's Picks New Products contest, and it's amazing to see the kind of products that come through. Uh, obviously, a lot of plant-based stuff, but meat makes a great showing it's, as well. Snacks are huge. They're going to continue to be huge. Um, people, the manufacturers are adding more value to snack foods because people think, perceive them as meals rather than just, uh, you know, a bag of chips or a cookie here and there. And speaking of cookies, um, it, it's amazing to see that there's a cookie for every diet. We tasted <laughs> cookies that have low sugar, no sugar, no wheat, no eggs, no dairy. There's even a cookie with healthy fats for someone on the keto diet. Um, the food industry does everything for everyone. It's old of choice and there's something for everybody. So, um, nobody should be mad that one particular vendor doesn't offer X or Y product because, um, someone else is going to have it. There's something for everybody. I love it. The consumer is king. I love it. Food, groceries. His name is Jim Dudlasek, editorial director of Progressive Grocery. He's a friend of the show. Appreciate you being on here. Thanks very much. You bet. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture.